Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening. Welcome to Ask Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello. So this is going to be the second part of our uh Probably three-part ongoing series on uh, yes. heresy. Last time we talked Yay. about Gnosticism and uh, Manich- Manichaeism. Yes. Yep. yes. The Gnostics. Yes, the Gnostics. As they are spelled. <laughs> yes. So they were dualists, just to sort of recap. Yep. I don't know. Anything yeah. you want to say about them? Um, yes. Well, um, yeah, we talked about them because... Obviously, they sort of come mm-hmm. first, but also they're super important because of the dualism. So, obviously, Gnosticism gives us our dualism. They, I mean, they didn't invent it, but they help bring it into what will become Christianity. Um, and then Manichaeism is this really fascinating religion that we talked about that bridges east to west, essentially. <laughs> I mean, North Africa all the way to China. Um, and... It becomes most famous in the West, ultimately, for the fact that Augustine um, is a follower for a while. That's the saint, of course. Um, And he writes about it in Confessions. And he definitely writes about it, of course, from his later perspective. So he sees it as this heretical thing that, like, seduced him. Um, But it also means that thereafter, (laughs) in the West, although Manichaeism definitely disappears... um, it sticks around for quite a while, sort of in other areas, but it does disappear really from, from the West. Um, but it means that Western religious figures are kind of on the lookout for this as a heresy. And so if dualism appears to rear its head, then that tends to be the first thing that's like leveled at it. Um, and so this time we're going to talk a little bit more about where orthodoxy actually comes from, but also we're going to talk about the Cathars, who are the big dualist... I mean, they're the dualists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the dualism of the Middle Ages. That's the actual dualism of the Middle Ages in the West. And um, they are sometimes called like Manichees or false. I mean, Manichaeism was considered false, but there was also a realization that they maybe weren't really mm-hmm. <laughs> following Manichaeism. Um, but that that was, of course, sort of the touchstone because Augustine had... Um, Mentioned it basically, you know. Sure. So that was the thing that people knew. That was the that was the dualist touchstone. Um, but pretty quick, you know, they they do become called other things. Cathars isn't actually the name necessarily they gave themselves. So, um, so we'll talk about all that. But yeah, so that's why we start with dualism because that's sort of where things start. But it's also one of the it is one of the big big things in the the later Middle Ages. But it is, I think, as we were at pains to say last time the Cathars are going to be very different. Yeah. <laughs> um, these are not the same things. The dualism is important, but these are not the same things during their head, even though they were frequently accused of it, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, and also, arguably, we're going to talk a lot about some of the other heresies that show up next time, particularly the sort of proto-Protestant. We'll tease them a little bit at the end today. But it's also notable, the Cathars are so, so famous, because ultimately there's a crusade against them. And this is one of those famous moments, if you have, if any of our listeners have heard about the Crusades, other than the obvious, of course, <laughs> against the Middle East, Yes, um, probably you've heard that there were even Crusades against Christians. And this is the one. 
this is the one that people are talking about. Um, and so the Crusades to the Middle East also fought Christians because they went through Orthodox, you know, Byzantine areas and sacked Christian cities like Constantinople. So definitely those also were frequently fought against Christians. But this is the one that was actually called against Christians. Okay. Um, yeah. And so that's why it's the big, it's the big one. <laughs> they're the big duelists. Um, they're not manichees. We'll sort of talk about, they're probably not related at all, really. But, um, but the fact that Augustine had sort of written about this and that dualism was sort of this um, kind of boogeyman, I guess, that was out there. There are kind of a lot of questions about why the Cathars end up being this, you know, the ones who are really persecuted to this extent. Politics also, of course, has something to do with it. But anyway, so so this is, yeah, this is kind of the big, the big thing. Yes. So we... I kind of decided between last week and this week, they should probably get their own episode, basically. <laughs> All right. Because um, there's so much. Yeah. Well, I feel like we should start by talking about orthodoxy. And like... Yes. So I guess that's sort of a, a thing that some religions... I mean, all religions have like orthodoxy in the sense of like stricter adherence, I guess. Um, right. But... Not all religions have, like, a central group of people who decide, like, this is what we believe, ultimately. Right. But yeah, Catholicism sure does. <laughs> yes. So how did, they, how did they get to that type of situation? Yes. Because Judaism, um, I mean, like, rabbinical Judaism doesn't. But they were also right. coming sort of out of temp templar Yes, and that's Judaism. actually one of the big things, of course. Yeah. Well, the Judaism that you can um, debate. Mm -hmm. I mean, that you debate. Right. Right. What do things mean? Um, and so there are certain practices, right? Um, and this is very common, of course, for religions, particularly very old religions, where the practice is the thing. Right. Right. And so a lot of times we say things like, well, did the Greeks believe in their God? Did the Romans believe in their gods? Um, and it honestly didn't frequently matter. Mm-hmm whether or not you believed in them the way we mean that today. Right. Right. So in some ways, when we say believe, we mean something different today. Uh, we, you know, we mean like, did Homer really think that there were these divine figures who helped build the city of Troy and then defend it mm -hmm. <laughs> against the Greeks? And then, of course, there were some more divine beings who sided with the Greeks. Or that Athena That's not showed up and talked to Telemachus and... Right. right. Exactly. All of that. Um, hung around with, with Odysseus, helped him out. Yeah. Um, that's not the, that's not really the point, right? On the other hand, it's not necessarily completely allegorical the way we think of it today. Um, you know, yeah, Athena is the goddess of wisdom and Odysseus is super smart. Like that's kind of his defining feature. Um, but it's not completely allegorical, but it also isn't necessarily belief the way, you know, I said that we define it today, um, there's a kind of middle road mm -hmm. where you do believe in kind of these divine forces, but whether or not you sincerely believe a figure comes down and talks to people, it doesn't have to be that cut and dried in some ways, right? Modern, um, our modern sense of belief, of literal interpretation, right, um, has in some ways, I think, affected what we mean when we say do you believe in something? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, 
do you believe in ghosts? Meaning, like, do you think that you could see a person who has died? Right. <laughs> right. And that, but, you know, some people who believe in ghosts, that's not necessarily what they believe, you know, but they think, like, the spirit maybe still hangs around or, right? So there is mm-hmm. this middle ground that I think we still recognize, but it gets a little bit overlooked. Um, and so that's that's a big part of what's going on. And the reason it didn't matter so much, the reason they didn't have to define it quite so obviously, is because, of course, it was all about practice, right? So as long as you are sacrificing to the gods um, and, you know, giving your share of stuff to the city or the emperor, or whoever it is who wants it mm-hmm. at that time, as long as you're rendering unto Caesar, etc., um, what you personally believe, nobody really cares, right? Um, and so that, that sense of practice, right, um, it is one of the hallmarks of Judaism, of course, that, like, practice is a big thing. Right. So you can debate the meanings behind stuff. You can debate the reasons you do things. <laughs> um, you can debate everything, right? You can debate the spaces between the letters. Mm-hmm. Um, that's fine. You can debate the existence of God, but you're supposed to keep kosher. Right. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, now, in some ways, that that obviously is... That's a reminder of how old Judaism is. It's not as old as some religions obviously have been, um, but it is fairly old, right? It's two and a half plus yeah. to 3,000, I guess, years old, right? Um, Had a good and run that's pretty old. at this point, yeah. Yes, it's, it's going well. It's going well, still going. Um, and that, but that fact, right, that makes it very clearly much older by, you know, more than 500 years. Mm-hmm. That's just written down. I mean, but but practice-wise, even, right? That a lot of things are at least 500 years older than its next sort of, than of the monotheistic religions it's related yeah. to, right? The next one, which is Christianity. Um, and then, of course, Islam is the youngest. Mm-hmm. Um, and another so, about 500 years, right? Yeah. So you have this really interesting um, sense, right, of practice as being so paramount. Mm-hmm. Um, and... The idea that belief, you can believe whatever, but you have to do the thing. And um, that's important because, of course, practice is how you get, like, cultural unity, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, it's a cliche, the family that prays together stays together. But th- that's how it looks, right? The group as a whole, right? The group that keeps kosher together has to keep living in the same place because you need a shohit who can right. <laughs> give you kosher meat, I guess. Right. <laughs> right? Um, so It helps um, yeah. form a community of people who can sort of see themselves as all having similarities, right? In the sort of imagined community's yes. sense. And as yes. differentiating themselves from outsiders. Yes. And this is the big thing, right? How do communities form? Um, They're formed in a variety of ways. They're formed by external pressure, right? Persecution. Mm -hmm. It's a great way to form a community. Um, (laughs) And um, I mean, of course, it's a terrible way, but it it will form a community. Those who are being (laughs) persecuted will group together. Mm -hmm. So the same idea, how do you do it from the inside positively? Right. And that that's sort of this answer. Right. Well, you come up with these rules, like things like the Ten Commandments Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And everyone follows them. And eventually you are all doing this and other people are not doing this. So you are a special group doing these Mm -hmm. things. 
and you see yourselves, yeah, as a community um, without being persecuted, although persecution might follow <laughs> at some point. These things tend to happen. Um, but yeah, so this is how you get communities. Um, one way. One way to get a community, right? Um, and of course, this goes back to, oh my god, I didn't think I was going to bring this up, but it's going to but here we go. It went. We went here. So here we are. Gonna we're gonna go here. Uh, we're gonna drop the names. Let's see. We're, we might as well drop Victor Turner, basically. Um, but ideas of liminality mm -hmm. um, and communitas. And liminality, liminal comes from the Roman Latin word for threshold, right? Um, and liminality is being in between. And we usually, in this case, it refers specifically, particularly to religious ceremonies, although. Um, he has a different word for secular. I'm going to ignore that. Anyway, um, so we're just going to say we're going to use a secular ceremony that's happening right about now everywhere. That's graduation. Yeah. Because we're recording this in May. Before your graduation, you are still a student. And then afterwards, you are not. Mm -hmm. You are a high school graduate, or perhaps you are a bachelor of something. Yes. <laughs> Arts or sciences, probably. You might be a master of something. What? Um, you might even be a doctor. Yeah. Well done. Um, yes. Yes. And right. So the before and after and during that ceremony, you are neither one. Mm -hmm. You are betwixt and between. Right. So that is a liminal state. And um, the idea is, of course, a graduation is fun. Right. And everyone's there together. And the idea is this year, some of this could happen again, but certainly in normal years, uh, your family's there and your friends are there and everyone's there and you're all going through this thing together. Mm -hmm. And it is supposed to be a moment that builds community. And it frequently does, right? It's quite possible that like at a graduation from high school or college or whatever, you might be sitting near someone you never really get along with. But sort of in that moment during that ceremony, you're like, oh, we all really love each other. We're all here. Mm -hmm. You know, we all did this together. Yay. Right. So it's supposed to erase... Um, you know, it's supposed to erase differences. It's supposed to erase things like, you know, petty jealousies <laughs> or whatever, right? It's supposed to erase all yes. those things in this ceremony. And that's that's communitas, right? The creation of community that happens in the ceremony. And we can see, of course, how a religious ceremony, you know, some it becomes much more obvious, right? There are certain types of religious ceremonies where it's um, particularly, you know, Turner was an anthropologist. Um, so he's talking frankly about like coming of age stuff. Right. So you might think of sort of, um, uh, you know, boy into man um, things that are maybe less like a bar mitzvah, which is a very um, staid, yes, laid back type of ceremony. There's no ritual um, and hunting. That are... There's no ritual circumcision. There's no, <laughs> right. you know, being taken out into the middle of nowhere by your tribal elders and forced to find your way back. And there's exactly. there's not even any body painting. Right. Is disappointing, exactly. To be honest. Um, so while it is still liminal <laughs> and you can still you still absolutely form a community. Um, yes. Turner is looking at sort of the high pressure situations. A lot of these things were mm -hmm. traditionally. And the fact that the community that would get built maybe either between the young men, between the young men and the elders, the community that happens in those moments. And yeah, particularly because, you know, there's this fear like maybe not everyone will make it back and things like that um and there's also that sort of added um issue with being in a liminal space that something can go wrong um and if something goes wrong then it's sort of this ceremony hasn't worked mm -hmm. right and then you're 
I mean, hope even if you're still alive, like you're maybe not a man yet. What does that mean? Do you still get to join the tribe? Anyway, so it is a kind of potentially dangerous situation. Um, anyway, so liminality and community tests. Um, th- these are ways to form communities, right? Um, so you can do them. The way, this is the sort of interesting thing that persecution, as I said, from an outside force can do it, but there are ways to do this internally as well. Um, and this is another one, right? Mm-hmm. So liminality. So, so practice is frequently the most important thing, right? You can believe whatever. That, who cares, right? But the, it's what you do. It's the actual practice. Um, we are starting now to see a shift in that, um, where belief, there's this sort of growing realization, particularly because, right, Christianity, I mean, okay, so <laughs> before there's really Christianity, there are Jews who are following this guy who is executed by the Romans on a cross. Mm-hmm. Um, and people write some stuff about him within or about, within or about 100 years after he's died, you know, because people remember him and they're still interested in him and following him. He's a great leader and people start writing stuff. Um, and so for a while, practice is what matters. So you, if you're going to be a follower of this guy, you convert to Judaism because that, that is the religion. Yeah. Right? It's not yet a separate religion. But eventually some people, not, I mean, it doesn't take that long. It's a few decades, right? Some people who might or might not be named Paul, um, start to argue that like maybe it's not right maybe practicing Judaism isn't the way to do this because this guy really was a radical leader he had some fascinating new ideas um maybe it's not still the practice of Judaism maybe it's something else and so okay it's a different practice but what is that practice like what are you going to do how are your rituals going to be different he didn't really set up rituals mm-hmm. he set up ideas he was a philosopher essentially this guy he left you with a lot of sayings, sure. a lot of parables. He was a great storyteller. <laughs> but he more told you what not to do than what mm-hmm. to do. Other than things like love thy neighbor, of course. Um, Try to he be was nice more to each sort other. of Guys. Yes. For real. <laughs> yes. Um, but there was also the sense of, right, that you don't, maybe you don't have to worry so much about keeping kosher. Maybe you don't have to worry so much about, right, mm-hmm. maybe that isn't what makes you a, a good person. Right. Okay. So in this weird way, right, we have this kind of undoing of practice on some level, but what do we, we have to have something to replace it with. Right. Okay. So the, what generally happens in these situations, of course, is that either you have someone who has great ideas about what to do, or (laughs) you start looking around and deciding what those people are doing. I know it, like, I don't know exactly what I'm supposed to be doing, but I know it's not what those other people are doing. Right. And we, what we get is a combination of that, right, which is. Um, early leaders with great ideas and also <laughs> early leaders looking at all of the practices around them and all of the new ideas that have sprung up around this new, what we might call, right, new religion, um, and defining themselves in opposition to the things they don't like or don't agree with, right? So this is one of the things we talked last time about Gnosticism, right, dualism, Um one of the things that is decided is that this is not a dualist belief system, right? Okay, so what we get, um, I'm going to drop some names here, might as well. Um, Bart Ehrman has called this proto-orthodoxy. Um, so Bart Ehrman, he's got a ton of books about tons of stuff, but things like Lost Christianities, Lost Scriptures, um, Misquoting Jesus, 
forgery and counter forgery. Um, these are all his books. Anyway. <laughs> um, Some of those sound really interesting. And yeah, he's, he's the dude. Um, he's the sort of, I mean, he's a biblical scholar, but more specifically, he is a scholar who, and he kind of has, he has stories. I mean, that are probably on the internet um, about, he got into this very much sort of as a believer. And then the more he read a lot of this, you know, read, I mean, he read the Bible in its original languages and so mm-hmm. on, right? Um, and starting to recognize that these are books that were written like anything else, that they had authors and they had source material and some of it's been lost. Um, and some, and then more authors came along and pretended to be people they weren't, right? And wrote stuff as though they were apostles, but they definitely weren't apostles because they were a couple hundred years later. Um, and this, this is where he gets the term forgery, right? Usually we don't call these forgeries exactly. We recognize that they're being written in the names of people that they weren't. Mm-hmm. But but we, yeah, So, but we don't necessarily assume <laughs> that they're trying to forge something in the modern sense. Um, but he sort of comes straight out, right? So that's where you get the title forgeries. Anyway, but he, um, you know, if you're interested in source texts and how the Bible was really created, right? Um, yeah, he's the one to read. <laughs> so check him out. And anyway, so he talks about proto-orthodoxy, mm-hmm. which is the sense of, right, before orthodoxy is being defined, you can trace the beliefs that will become orthodoxy. But originally, when they first show up, there is no way to know that they are the ones that are going to win out. Okay. That, that right? makes sense. So, yeah. So looking back on it now, we can be like, well, of course, dualism didn't win. How could Gnosticism have won? Mm-hmm. But it could have. <laughs> it's sure. just that the guys, and I mean guys, I definitely mean guys, right? The men who um, ended up being the most influential and dominant were against it. So that is not one. That being said, we did talk last time about Origen, the guy who, as I said, like sort of brought a lot of these ideas into Christianity. He was a very orthodox. He was one of the sort of foundations of orthodoxy at the beginning. And yet much later, much later, a couple hundred years later, after he after he's dead, um, he will be looked at with suspicion and even potentially as heretical. So that's how far orthodoxy sort of moves as it's defining itself into orthodoxy, right? Is that this guy who was kind of trying to be a foundation of orthodoxy was a brilliant guy, but of course was of his time, and a few hundred years later, most of that stuff is no longer considered orthodox, right? Uh, but there's no reason it... Why Why wasn't it? I mean, Origen thought it was, so... Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, the defining of orthodoxy. What happens is, essentially... <laughs> As I said, you have all these things going on, right? And sometimes you have popular opinion behind you. Sometimes you just have powerful opinions behind you, meaning important people. There are a lot of, there's a lot of apocrypha running around. I mean, there are tons of things running around, right? Mm-hmm. And we talked last time, um, the Gnostic Gospels, right? Um, the Nag Hammadi Discovery, not, right? The Nag Hammadi Library. Um, those things ultimately are considered apocrypha, but there's no reason that they had to have been, right? Um, so how did the four Gospels that are in the New Testament end up being the ones that were considered Gospel? <laughs> right? And the answer is that the powerful people ended up deciding that, basically. Right? For for a variety of reasons. But um, basically, from sort of 
you know, the beginning. Until 325 CE, we have what's known as the Anti-Nicene period. That's anti like before, like anti-chamber, right? So with an E, not an I. Hmm. Not, so it's not anti, it's anti, right? Yeah. So before, and we mean before the Council of Nicaea. Um, so the first Council of Nicaea is in 325 CE, and that is the first ecumenical council. Um, and that is, that's where things really kick off. Um, so before that, we have the Antinocene period, and we have just all this stuff running around, right? So obviously Gnosticism, um, eventually, right? Yeah. Manateism, tons of other small things that we did not talk about running around. Some of them are dualists, some of them aren't, but all sorts of small, this is why lost Christianities, right? This is, book, lost um, Christianities. this is like that scene in Life of Brian, right? Where the guy is like, yes. look, I've got his shoe. Everybody follow the shoe. And somebody else is like, forget the shoe. I've got his drinking gourd. Follow the gourd. Yes. That is 100%. Yeah. And then you have all, I mean, also in Life of Brian, you have all the different groups. Yes. Like we're the United Front. People's Republic of Judea and we're the Judean whatever, like Front. all the, yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, yeah, that's exactly what's going on. Right. That is exactly what's going on. Um, and it's just, I mean, it, it's happenstance. It's luck of the draw. It's not pure chance, but it is, there is no clear rhyme or reason to why things end up working out the way they do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. But slowly and surely, different powerful people different, just very brilliant minds who end up becoming powerful, start gravitating towards certain ideas and away from others. Mm -hmm. Right? And the thing is, the more you gravitate towards some and away from others, then the more you have to define the others as wrong and yourself as right. You got to attract people to your cause so that you go from being one of the lost Christianities, which you don't know it's right, mm -hmm. um, proto-orthodoxy to being the orthodoxy. Yes. Right. And so um, one of the there are a few things that, that happen um, in this period. Um, and one of them, of course, is, it, is the defining of the New Testament, the books that are in it versus the books that are not in it. Um, church hierarchy. So <laughs> depending, listeners may or may not remember, but um, Jesus famously not a huge fan of the priests in the temple. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's one of his defining moments. It's a big moment. This is a moment For where him. he actually uh, flips the tables and uh, yes. chases chases them out of the temple with whips, I think. Yes, all of these things. That's very dramatic. Yeah, because, you know, yes, it's a great song in Godspell also. <laughs> um, but yeah, right. So this this moment, it's famous and defining. Um, and that's his, this is his commentary, right, on Judaism at the time. Now, this is the hilarious thing about history. <laughs> is that Judaism at the time centered around a temple. There was this one temple, and that's where you had to go do things. And so if you wanted to go to temple, like, that was it. It was the one, right? Um, sacrifices, everything, right? It all went there. It all went through the priests. Mm -hmm. Ordinary people didn't get much, right? And so Jesus is pretty clearly part of what is, at the time, a heresy, Right? It is the rabbinic heresy, which essentially was the idea that individual people could be teachers and could have groups and that communities could do things. Obviously, the temple is destroyed. It's the second one. Um, it was in 74-ish? Yeah. A-C-E. Mm. Um, yeah, and the decision is made, of course, not to rebuild it. It's not solely, I mean, the decision of 
Jews, of course, like, you know, Rome is around and stuff, but um, it is not rebuilt. There is one wall, of course, left, mm -hmm. famously. Um, but what happens then is, of course, that the rabbinic practice becomes Jewish practice. And um, whenever there's a big old festival where you were supposed to do something at the temple, like make a sacrifice, you read about it instead. And there's, you know, Yom Kippur, which is the big day of atonement. Um, there's this whole passage where you read about what the priest would have done at the temple on Yom Kippur. <laughs> and the idea that reading the practice is as good as doing yes. it because you can't do it anymore because there's no temple. Right. That's a reminder in a lot of ways of just how practice-based Judaism was. Mm -hmm. Right? Because you might say, well, there are hundreds, there are thousands of temples, synagogues, right? Everywhere today. Oh, yeah. But the thing is, like, that doesn't matter. You can't do this at any of them. <laughs> right? They're still Kohanim, right? They're still high priests, but it doesn't matter. Like, you had to be at that one, and you had to do it that way. You had to have the, you know, anyway. So, so practice-based. Um... So Judaism goes from being this very hierarchical, you know, with high priests and then the people under them and then the congregation who really don't have that much power. Um, it goes from being this really, really hierarchical religion to being a community based religion mm -hmm. for good and bad. I mean, but <laughs> um, and the interesting thing, of course, is that Christianity is going to go the other way. Mm -hmm. Right. So what happens in this time of proto orthodoxy is, of course, you have people who are like, you know, we can't we can't have priests and stuff because that's, you know, we're against the priests and so on. Um, and then, of course, you have people are like, no, no, because, you know, Jesus had his apostles. And so that is the structure that we need to have. Right. We have a leader. We have people under that leader. We have stuff like this. Sure. OK, so um, we get the hierarchy that we have today, basically, which is to say bishops and then people under them. <laughs> a lot of hierarchy. A lot of hierarchy in the church. Um, that being said, the reason I mention this is that it's going to be a recurring theme that people don't necessarily want that hierarchy. People who are against that hierarchy are going to be a recurring theme in heresies. Right? Okay. Um, because, of course, the whole point that Jesus was like, you can have your own relationship with God. Priests in the temple are greedy and bad. <laughs> um, these arguments are going to come back, is my point. But anyway... But that being said, right, in, in this period, orthodoxy does decide that there will be this hierarchy, right? So church hierarchy. The sacraments. Um, Judaism doesn't really have sacraments. Christianity no. has a lot of them. So baptism is decided, right? John the Baptist is oh, named sure. that because he baptizes Jesus in the waters, right? Um, so baptism becomes a sacrament. Um, the Eucharist. So the Last Supper, of course, right? This is my body. This is, mm -hmm. you know, eat of this, right? This bread. Um, so the the Eucharist becomes a sacrament. Um, marriage? So these are sacraments. Are the other sacraments? Yeah, marriage is a sacrament. Um, last rites, of course, yeah. yeah. So so these are slowly instituted, right? Um, the idea of sacraments, and these are those. Okay. Um, the idea that Christ is... And now we're getting into more the what we think of as the actual belief... A lot of people don't even think of that as belief, but of course it is, right? Mm -hmm. Church hierarchy is belief. <laughs> Sacraments are belief. But then we get into the things that are really going to cause problems down the road. Um, and that is, for example, that Christ is both fully divine and fully human. That one's going to cause some problems in the future. Yeah. 
You may already remember that we had some Gnostics, you know, who were like, he can't be human. The material world is bad. <laughs> right? So he was never really human. Um, variations on that are going to come back for sure. Um, the Trinity is also defined at this point. Okay. Right? We've gone from having, of course, monotheism, uh, which Judaism kind of defines for the the age that it's in. It's not the only monotheistic religion ever, but it's the one that really survives. Sure. <laughs> um, and, and it happened to Judaism, be up against, like, Rome at the time, right? Which is yep. definitely the opposite. They were like... Yes. Can we get some more gods? Does anybody have any gods right. they'd like to enter into our pantheon? Yeah. And that's what I said, like, about belief. I mean, remember, like, Rome and even Greece, right? They're really open to other religions. Mm -hmm. They just add them to the pack. It's if you refuse, then, to acknowledge their gods, that's when you get a problem. Yeah. Right? Because they don't care if you believe in them, but you got to sacrifice to them because this is part of making you part of the community. Mm -hmm. Right? You got to go through that ritual. <laughs> um, and if you're unwilling to, you do not want to be part of their community, which, let's be fair, is usually the point. Right. You're like, no, I'm not a part of your community. I'm rebelling against you. Um, and then they would get mad. And that's, and you know. Then you get nailed. But it's less about religious. Yes. Um, but it's not necessarily religious persecution per se. You know, it is also very political. Obviously, it's very political. Um, but yeah. So anyway, so we have. Um, Yes, this sort of sense, right, the Trinity, um, because we have God, of course, who is the Father, then we have Christ, who is the Son. That already is going to cause problems, because how does God have a Son, who is also eternal? Mm -hmm. Is the Son also eternal? Okay. The Orthodox answer is going to be yes. <laughs> they are co-eternal. And then there's also the Holy Spirit. Right. So there's this decision... Um, that that one doesn't come out immediately, but that is that is pretty quick. That the, and then the question is, how are all three? So the idea of the Trinity as being a unity mm -hmm. shows up. So, but that's all defined as orthodoxy. There are plenty of Christianities that don't believe in that. Really, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, they're like you can't have that's three gods. Mm -hmm. There's only one God, and that God had a son, Jesus, and. You know, fine. But, like, there, Jesus isn't co-eternal. Oh. He's the son of God. Interesting. God begot him. Yeah. So how can he be... Yeah. And they just leave the <laughs> Holy Spirit part out altogether? Basically, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, in fact, um, there's a priest, Arius, from Alexandria, who does not believe in some of these things. Um, and, you know, his followers... Be it's known as Arianism. Okay. Um, after Arius. And um, it does question, he questions, they question, um, the full divinity of Christ and say exactly this, right? That if God begot his son, then the son can't be eternal. Like, that, <laughs> by definition. Um, and so this is one of the big things. And in fact, this is part of why that first council... Um, the Council of Nicaea, which is in Turkey, by the way, is called in 325. Um, Emperor Constantine convenes it. Uh, the early ecumenical councils are mostly convened by emperors. These would be Roman or Byzantine emperors. Sure. Um, to reach consensuses, consensus, um on orthodoxy. <laughs> um, and the consensus of 
I mean, this is the problem, right? Because you, it's still being defined. And so you, you know, it's, it's religious, but it's also political. You kind of have to know what people are supposed to believe, mm -hmm. how you're keeping your community together, who are the people you need to shun from your community or potentially punish or whatever. Right. So, um, yeah. So the first council, um, this is one of the things it does. Um, but a little before that, um, we have um, this bishop, a bishop of Antioch in the second century. Um, so this is the, the 100s, right? <laughs> so this is pretty quick, right? Um, and this bishop, Ignatius, um, is joyously awaiting martyrdom in Rome. Um, and he writes some letters. And we have seven that are pretty clearly authentic. Okay. And these kind of give us the foundations of what will become proto-Orthodoxy. Or the foundations of proto-Orthodoxy that will become actual Orthodoxy. <laughs> um, so he ends up being the guy who's kind of on the line that people are going to decide is the right line. And it's interesting because actually here he is joyously awaiting martyrdom. So like, he, is um, he in jail he or something? Believes, yes. Yeah, and he's writing letters. Not just, like, hanging around on the courthouse steps every day being like, hey, anybody no, want no. <laughs> you know, string me up, guys? No, no, no. Got Which some is, ideas. That's a little more origin, I believe. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Um, he, you know, he's whatever, he's taken to Rome, um, he is put in jail, awaiting whatever, and he writes these letters. And there, there are more that are out there, I think there are 13, but seven of them have sort of been decided as authentic, anyway. And, um, yeah, so they sort of give us, give us this, right? That he has this line. The interesting thing is that, um, we talked about, right, the Nag Hammadi Library mm -hmm. and, um, the Gnostic Testimony of Truth, which is one of the things that was discovered in that group of texts, um, considers martyrdom to be foolish. Oh. And so it's a reminder, again, right, that something that we think of is so basic. You're like, of course, you're em emulating Christ, but no, no, not everyone at the time agreed that that was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. It's just that, again, that is what has become orthodoxy. And so Ignatius is part of that. Um, and obviously that will be that will be a line that is followed by a lot of people. Um, OK, so essentially um, we have the first Council of Nicaea, 325, convened by Constantine. Um, we get the Nicene Creed, right? OK, the one of the most famous things ever. Um, it is amended at the Second Ecumenical Council, which is in Constantinople in 381. So the, the creed that exists today that everyone knows is not exactly the one that was, it's close, but it's slightly altered at the Second Council. So, uh, but this is where we get the creed, which comes from the credo, right? Cratere, I believe, to believe. And that's the whole point. The point was you came up with basically a short thing that people could say <laughs> what they believed in. Sure. Which is really fascinating. They didn't invent it. It was already around in certain circles. But that idea of having a thing that's like, this is what I believe, is really extraordinary mm -hmm. in some ways, right? It's not just like, here's what I practice or here's what I do, or but, but like, I believe in these things, you know? Um, it's funny. So, I've met Unitarians who had like a little business card that said what Unitarians believe. Like five, hmm. like a five point sort of list. Yeah. Sure, sure. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah, right. And that's sort of because, I mean, today, of course, that is the question. Like, that's what people want to know. Like, well, what do you believe? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that I would say the question used to probably have been, um, what is it you do? Right? right. We do this. What do you do? Right. 
this is how we sacrifice. Yeah. How do you do it? We don't eat pigs. Um, we, uh, right. We burn to exactly. offerings. Yeah. Yes. What, what do you do? Yeah. Right. Um, but now it's about what you believe. So, um, which honestly, of course, again, like Judaism doesn't really have an answer to that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, which is the funny, funny thing. Okay, about old, about older religions. You yes. can't necessarily tell people. Um, okay, but that being said, um, all right. So we have we have the council, and as I said, also one of the other things they do, they are defining what they do believe and also what they don't believe, and what they don't believe is Arianism. <laughs> so that is the thing they do not believe, and that is definitely decided to be a heresy. Okay, right. So God and His Son are both eternal. Um, and Jesus, so Jesus is also eternal, um, and they are they are the same. They're the same essence. Mm-hmm. They're not separate essences. <laughs> um, yeah. So there we go. So that's these are some of the basics. All right. The second council that meets at Constantinople in three eighty one. Um, this is again convened by the Roman Emperor, who is now Theodosius the first. Um, they amend the creed. They keep after heresies. Um, and it's a kind of reminder that they are being forced to define orthodoxy a lot of times in reference to heresy, right? Uh, and what starts to happen, this probably shouldn't be a surprise, is that after a lot of ecumenical, not just after, but like around a lot of ecumenical conferences, um, councils, they are convened frequently because there are issues, as I had said. Um, and then what frequently does happen is that these issues are, in quotes, resolved, but of course, all they resolved to the will of the majority. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people who are <laughs> not resolved leave. So we get some schisms. Um, so after the Council of Ephesus, 431, um, the Assyrian church breaks off. After the Council of Chalcedon, in 451, so that's very close. Yes. <laughs> um, right? The, um, a whole, uh, what are known as sort of the Oriental Orthodox churches break off. Um, so these include what today, um, Ethiopian Orthodox, Eritrean Orthodox, Coptic Orthodox, Syriac Orthodox, Indian Orthodox, Armenian Apostolic. And they, the, the big disagreement in this one, um, is something else that's going to kind of come back. Um, it's about the nature of Jesus. So the council says um, Jesus has one person, but two natures, divine and human. Um, and the churches that break off um, are Miaphysites. They follow Miaphysitism. Um, that's M-I-A for one, right? That's Greek word for one. Okay. P-H-Y. P-H-Y-S-I-T. Um, e. Uh, and that means that they believe Jesus is only one nature. So it could be a nature that is both divine and human, or it could mean that they think he's only divine. Hmm. Anyway, so that's a break. Uh, obviously, the Great Schism happens in 1054. That's East versus West, right? Where we get essentially what is today the Roman Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox. Yes. Um, and one of the big ones there, so we had mentioned the hierarchy. One of the early things that is decided is that there are bishops everywhere. Every city gets one bishop. Some bishops are slightly more important than others. <laughs> uh, Constantinople, Jerusalem, and Rome. And it's decided that Rome is still just a bishop, but is kind of the bishop of bishops. Mm-hmm. Of course, now we call him the Pope. Um, and so that the, the Roman see, that's spelled S-E-E, meaning seat, um, that the Roman see is, is essentially supreme. 
Um, and by the time we get to, I mean, the next millennium, essentially, so 1054, um, this isn't the sort of thing that the patriarch in Constantinople is super interested in. And so in a lot of ways, this moment, there has been there have been a lot of theological differences between the two churches, for sure. Um, and, you know, people probably know, for example, that um, Easter is celebrated on a slightly different date, Eastern Orthodox, like there are theological differences. But one of the big reasons that the schism happens is the sort of power struggle between the patriarch in Rome, I mean, the patriarch in Constantinople and the Pope in Rome, right? Um, and so... I feel like yeah. we alluded to this in a previous episode where we talked about icons. Yes. Yeah, that's another, another one of the things, of, of course. Yeah. Yes. And liturgical rites are also different at this point. So different languages, right? Mm-hmm. Greek versus Latin. They have different hats, too. Yes. Much more. Yeah, gears. there are a lot of differences. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, well, there end up being a lot of differences. Ultimately, um, marriage, of course, is going to be a difference. That's not one yet. Um, priests can get married in Christianity up until this century. I mean, the thousands. But that is then that is then a difference. Yeah. yeah. So um, anyway, so so that isn't one. But yes, there are going to be a lot of there are uh, theological differences, right? And so liturgical rites. I mean, ceremonies are starting to be different, right? And so again, right, practice is different. There are these differences. The communities are different, but it is very much also just a struggle for control, you know. So it's political. So both of these things. Anyway, all right. So this is what happens, right? So these are the sort of work to define orthodoxy. Um, every time you need to, you kind of call a council. It happens a lot in the first hundred years, but you. These keep going, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, so 1054 is the Big East-West one. And now this, in some ways, creates creates a new problem, right? Because suddenly the people who had always, at least they'd been different, they were doing different things in different languages, but nonetheless, you'd always ostensibly been on the same side, kind of. Suddenly you're not, right? Mm-hmm. And so at your borders are people who... Do you consider them heretics? <laughs> I mean, you no longer quite consider them Christians in your sense, right? So this opens up kind of interesting moment. And lots of other things are going on. I mean, there are always little heresies happening. Um, but in some ways, and this is an argument that happens. So I, I want to give a shout out to R.I. Moore, um, who has done a ton of work on um, what, I mean... Persecution, so formation of a persecuting society is probably the book, but there are lots of other things, right? Um, and has done a lot of work on the ways in which persecution of heresy both helps define orthodoxy, defines communities, defines societies. What are some of the lines we can draw between different persecutions, right? Um, at what point can we draw these lines to the future? Meaning today. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the question people frequently ask is, um, can you look at the persecution of the past and does it lead to the Holocaust, for example? Right. So Moore has tried to answer a lot of these questions. Um, and one of the things is that every time there's a new need to sort of define yourself in opposition to others, um, you're going to f- start finding heretics, basically. Right. You're going to start finding people that you are... <laughs> You know, if you can't find enough people to divine yourself in opposition to, you're going to create people. Okay. I guess is the point. Um, but 
anyway, so so there's some interesting things going on here. First of all, um, there are a lot of there are always a lot of little heresies running around. But secondly, this big schism does open up suddenly this new um, battle line, I guess, that hasn't existed before. Um, and obviously, um, Islam is also around now. Right. So that's another one. So suddenly the church in the West is kind of feeling vulnerable. And some really interesting things happen. Um, so, for example, uh, the fact that priests can no longer marry. This is a thing that happens based very much on the fact that monks can't get married. And the idea um, monastic life is sort of supposed to be the purer, better life. We want our priests to be better and purer. <laughs> so they will also no longer get married. Sure. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, that is the idea, right? <laughs> uh, we are proving that they are better and pure. And um, this is a thing we could obviously have a whole episode on. But part of the thing is um, that we are starting to have heresies that, I mean, they've always been around. But again, they're still around and they're coming back. Mm -hmm. uh, where people are suspicious of the church, right? The hierarchy of the church. Um, you know, this original image of Jesus in the temple <laughs> um, is something people look around and they're like, okay, um, monks are supposed to be poor, mm -hmm. right? Um, and yet, when you look at a, like, individually, monks don't own anything. Right. Individually, a monk does not own anything. But a monastery is a landlord the way a count is a landlord, mm -hmm. right? Um, I mean, there are counts <laughs> and earls and who are, who are not as rich as a lot of monasteries. You have to have a huge dowry to get into one. Oh, and they don't have any descendants, right? So all the wealth kind of mm -hmm. accumulates at the monastery. Yes. Yeah, that is the point, right? So you have um, incredibly wealthy, I mean, incredibly wealthy monasteries, but also um, incredibly wealthy people who are consolidating their wealth. I mean, essentially via monasteries, um, but also via putting their kids into monasteries and so on. Um, all right. So that on the one hand. On the other hand, um, you've always had people worrying about things like priests. Um, if a priest who is sinful gives you communion, that this is one of the things that is defined as orthodoxy. But it has to be specifically defined. And a lot of people aren't quite sure they agree with it. If a priest who is sinful gives you communion, it's still okay. Or confesses you or gives you last rites. Mm. It works, right? That the ritual works regardless of the vehicle, right? <sighs> okay, that's how rituals work. But also, ooh, right? The idea that um, it's not just the idea that a priest doesn't have to be a good person. <laughs> but it also kind of gives them license to not be good people. Sure. If they can still do their job and be terrible people. Right. So these are a lot of the questions that are being asked. I feel like philosophically it also raises the question, why do you need a priest at all if they don't have to be like Ooh. special holy people? So this is a question. I realize this may be getting toward proto-Protestantism, but... Yes. Well, but this is, a, this is absolutely a question. Why can't people have their own relationship with God? Yeah. So you'll see a lot of these things are around at the beginning. Mm -hmm. They get defined as not orthodox, but they don't disappear. Yeah. And they're still around. And now suddenly, uh, the Western Church has the Eastern Church that is no longer right now. There's the schism, Islam, obviously. Um, so you got all these fronts, uh, which Christianity is fighting, 
fighting other Christians, <laughs> fighting um, Islam, and you have these little heresies running around. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things that happens, as I said, right, the fact that priests are no longer allowed to marry um, is one of the sort of answers to some of this stuff. Um, you know, it does make them different. It sets them apart. Um, it makes it seem as though they are supposed to be living a holier life. But then, of course, you just open that question back up again. Um, but what if they really still aren't living a holier life? Right. Does it matter? You've mentioned before even bishops who owned brothels or whatever. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So these are the problems, right? And that's, of course, part of the thing that happens when bishops are also landlords, essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, into this, we have... Um, in sort of the region of Bulgaria, uh, this guy, he's a priest named Bogomil, which translates apparently, um, this is Lambert, Malcolm Lambert in his book on heresies, translates as worthy of the pity of God. Um, so this might be a, you know, probably is not his actual original name, not probably his given name. But anyway, um, he becomes a dualist and founds what becomes known as sort of um, Bogomilism. He's radically ascetic, number one. And this is probably one of the things that attracts a lot of people. Because, again, right, you're looking around at these monasteries. They're not supposed to own anything. They're so rich. And they take all your taxes. And they make you work their land. <laughs> what's what's going on? Right? Are these really men of God? Um, and so radical, radical asceticism. And, and also dualism. Um, probably not taken... Um, from Manichaeism, not necessarily an unbroken tradition, certainly, but dualism as we have seen it before. Um, so flesh and material reality are evil, the creation of, you know, the fallen angel Satan, um, the unseen, right? The spiritual is good. Okay, so he's doing this, and this is the 10th century, 900s, um, and it slowly makes its way west. <laughs> so from sort of Bulgaria into what at this point um, is, you know, after the East-West Schism, makes it into the West, what is now sort of what we would call the Roman Catholic Church, and starts working its way around, like, Italy, and parts of what are now Germany, well, what is now Italy, what is now Germany, none of these things were, but anyway, uh, and into what is now France. Um, and it transforms into its own thing, we don't really know what they called themselves, but they are called the Cathars. Um, and we have mentioned them before in episode 30 on cats, because cats were thought of as heretical. Dogs were faithful, and cats were heretical. And so we mentioned them in this instance, because um, Alan of Lille suggested that the word, um, he's 1100s, 1182, 1202 or something. But he might have been the first person to suggest that Cathars was derived from cat, because of like their hereticalness. It's it's actually possible that it was, if if it's something that they had wanted or something like that, then it might be linked to the word catharsis, meaning purity. But it's not actually clear where it comes from or what it means. And it's not clear that they ever called themselves that. They seem to have called themselves just the good men. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. The interesting thing about that, though, is that they also included women. Hmm. So this is one of those things we haven't quite mentioned, but obviously, because obviously Judaism has this problem as well, but orthodoxy, Jesus didn't have as much of this problem. He clearly had female followers. Um, and the Magdalene is one of the big ones, and she's should probably be considered an apostle. But uh, I leave that to Catherine Jansen to discuss <laughs> in her book on Mary Magdalene. Um, but anyway, so uh, this really interesting 
point that the Cathars, um, France, as time wears on, France starts to get a, maybe more misogynistic. This is kind of from Lambert. Um, but Italy stays with it. But the Cathars allow women to participate fully. Oh. So, yeah. So they, they are dualists. So they, you know, so they take a lot of this from, um, Bogom- the Bogomils, and there's still contact between the two groups for a fairly long time. Um, but you can see, right, this isn't, this isn't Eastern Orthodoxy working its way in. This is a heresy that starts in the East and moves its way in. Um, but how, you know, one of these things that makes the West paranoid, basically. Um, and part of their radical asceticism comes from this idea that they um, they reject, they do reject icons, so they have this in common with the East. Um, the material cannot represent the divine. Right? But they go even further. Um, because material reality is evil, essentially, um, they don't eat anything that is the product of procreation. So milk, cheese, eggs, meat. <laughs> um, they do not believe in marriage. Not for anybody. Okay. Right? Um, presumably because procreation is bad, that's part of the material reality of the world. Okay. Um, and they, they don't believe in owning stuff. Um, and also not really in eating stuff. So very, they're very, very aesthetic. Um, and again, right, looking, they become very popular. People are looking at monasteries with all these rich monks. I don't want to sound, um, skeptical, but... Do you feel like a religion that doesn't encourage people to eat or procreate? It feels like it's sort of self-limiting. Yes. Uh, there are obvious problems here. Um, yes. You know, at the same time, they obviously lived in a period where they just figured they could convert people. Like, it was going to be a while before they really ran into that problem. Okay. Right. But the idea was that anyone could essentially be a priest. They didn't call them that. Yeah. I, I do want to stress. But, Right. And not just a priest, but like a monk or even an apostle. The point is that they're living the apostolic life, right? So you're not marrying and you're going around and preaching. Um, however, they do divide. There are, there are groups. Um, so the people who are sort of living the apostolic life, um, who are these sort of poor wandering preachers, which is one of the things, again, that is looked on favorably by the populace. They're known as per- perfects. Mm-hmm. And so that's, they're a sort of specific group. And they also reject, I didn't get to all of this part, <laughs> um, they reject church buildings, um, so you do stuff outside, right? The veneration of saints, you shouldn't be looking at anybody except God. Okay. Right? Um, the priesthood, so they definitely reject the priesthood, right? The hierarchies, that sort of thing. Um, and again, because like, even though they do have perfects who are the sort of preachers who conduct ceremonies... Kind of anyone can be one, right? Which is obviously different from the mm. priesthood. Plus, there's not a hierarchy. Um, you know, once if you're perfect, then that's then you are. There isn't a hierarchy within that. Um, they reject some other things too, like established interpretations of scripture and also the sacraments. Um, so obviously, we just talked about marriage. They also reject baptism, uh, maybe because water is also, of course, a part of material creation. So how could it be used to purify you? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, they believe in the practice of laying on of hands, Okay, which seems to have been sort of, um, you know, about the spirit, right? It's a way of representing like the, um, imparting of the spirit or something, right? So, um, that's, so that's their practice. Um, and the Paternoster, 
right? Our Father. So that's that's their sort of go-to prayer, essentially. Okay. That's their sort of general... Yeah, that's their general sense. They have, as I said, right, the perfects, um, and then believers are the rest of the congregation. Um, but again, anyone can be a perfect, including women, um, and they're the ones who then, who preach and who also perform whatever rituals are necessary. Um, the big initiation ritual, which is sort of initiation, ordination, is kind of everything wrapped up into one. Um, it was known as consolation. Um, hmm. And women could also console people. Okay. So this is what they believe. Okay. <laughs> All right. So <clears throat> they're, I mean, obviously they're going to run into some trouble. They end up being really popular. In a lot of places, um, particularly France, uh, the Languedoc region, so that's like southeast, so southeastern France, is going to be the big stronghold. But they show up kind of everywhere. Um, it's maybe first noticed in Cologne, um, and there things do not go super well the first time around. Um, in 1143... Um, we know about this incident because somebody writes writes about it <laughs> um, to Bernard of Clairvaux, um, who is a Cistercian and also super famous, St. Bernard, of course. The guy who, he, he doesn't seem to have seen it himself, but he's heard about it. He's sort of there in the area. Anyway, but Eberwood of Steinfeld in 1143 or 4 writes this letter to St. I mean, not yet St. Bernard. <laughs> Um, and Eberwin is a, um, he's part of the Order, Order of Canons Regular, um, of Prémontré, the, also known as the Norbertines, because St. Norbert founded them. Um, but Prémontsertensian is the <laughs> full-out Latin whatever for, for who he is. Um, anyways, and so they, um, well, he specifically, right, he has seen or heard of in Cologne, in 1143, um, that this group of people were sort of tested um, and found to be heretics. And then the people, he says specifically that the people like threw them into the fire, essentially. Hmm. So they're burned as heretics. Wow. Yeah. And more in the formation of a persecuting society says that there are basically three or four early moments when popular demand, maybe even against clerical resistance seems to have, caused heretics to be burned. Um, and there's one in 1114 in Soissons, um, Liege in 1135, Cologne 1143, and then maybe Liege again in 1145. Okay. Um, and this is the Cologne in 1143. Um, and this is the one we know were Cathars. Um, we know because of Eberwin. Um, Cathars do show up in Liege as well. So that may have been. Um, and... The point, of course, is supposed to be that the, the people are turning against them. Um, the interesting thing, of course, is that eventually the, the people are not going to turn against them. However, it's the sort of interesting moment because it's the kind of early, early situations of heretics being burned, ostensibly by sort of popular demand, mm -hmm. or even maybe this would be more akin to lynching, actually, right? If, if the authorities, meaning in this case sort of clerical authorities, um, we're not going to execute them yet. Um, so the sort of appearance of these groups in Liège and Cologne is noted very early. Um, some of the other things that are noted, in addition to what we've already said, um, is that they believe in the transmigration of souls. 
Um, and that also some of them are maybe, we mentioned this last time, docetic, the idea that Christ didn't have a material body at all. Um, this comes back because at some point, um, French Cathars may have come to believe that women can only be saved if they were reborn as men. Hmm. Okay. Um, but it seems like Italian Cathars did not follow that. Um, that's a little bit, this is, um, I think, anyway, but yeah, women are definitely allowed to sort of, um, take part. Uh, Malcolm Barber, the Cathars, uh, he's one of the big, big experts on that. So, um, anyway, so, um, it obviously starts out not looking good for the Cathars. Um, but then in 1165, there's this interesting debate. Um, so in 1163, there's a trial in Cologne, but it does not appear that they're, um, necessarily injured, um, excommunicated, certainly. Um, but, but not necessarily executed. Uh, but there's a, there's a trial and it's, it's sort of public. So the, the good men, meaning the Cathars, had a debate with their opponents. Um, this happens near Albi in the south of France. There's a debate. And Albi, this is in the Languedoc region. This is going to be one of the strongholds of where the Cathars are, which means they're also going to be known as Albigensians. Okay. And so they have this debate. Lots of, like, really important people are there. So there are bishops that are there. The Countess of Toulouse is present. Um, they are judged heretics, but it's not clear that anything really happens to them. Again, excommunication. I think, like, things happen, but they're not executed. They're not physically harmed, as far as you can tell. Um, and it seems, this is Lambert, that as, at least as long as into the early 1200s, um, that they can send students to Paris. So we talked about, like, the Theological oh. University at Paris and stuff. Um, yeah, that they can, that they can send people into Paris to, so, um, things are still okay for them into the, into the early 1200s. Not always great, because we did have that one instance of, maybe a few instances of Cathars being burned, but really important people are joining. So they have, you know, people of rank. Powerful people are joining the Cathars. Um, it even gets to England. Here they don't do so well. Um, it seems that there was a council at Oxford in 1166 um, that decided that they were going to sort of stamp it out by kind of just starving the missionaries to death. Okay. So England gets rid of it. But... In 1208, um, a papal legate is murdered by a vassal of Raymond VI of Toulouse. Okay. Um, and Raymond is a Cather. Um, now, this has been building for a while, right? I mean, they yeah. were first noticed in kind of the 1140s. It's this thing that clearly came in from the East. Like, that's recognized at this point. So they are confused sort of with Manichaeism for a while, which already is bad and also is, you know, as far as anyone is concerned, is foreign. But it, it by now it's sort of recognized, right? It came in from the East. Um, and at the same time, you have the rise of the Waldensians, who we're going to talk about, who are really not super heretical at all, <laughs> in a lot of ways. Certainly not compared to the Cathars. Um, but, uh, but they are a very, very strong kind of independent force. Mm -hmm. Um, who are also on the rise at this time. And we'll talk really more about them next time, because they'll take us into our kind of our evangelical and proto-Protestant stuff. But um, there is this sudden sort of fear that maybe the church is losing its grip on heresy. Um, and Innocent III becomes Pope um, and decides he's going to get some stuff done. Uh, the popes who follow him are also anti-heretical. Um, we also get the rise of the mendicant orders. So Dominic and Francis, um, who combat heresy in their own ways, uh, episode 30 as well, 
we discussed the Dominicans become like the pun on their name, the Dominicanes, the hounds of the Lord. Yes. Right. So they are, they are inquisitors. Ultimately they become inquisitors. Really. So, um, the, I should mention the Waldensians, even though, as I said, for the most part, they're kind of non-threatening. They also believe in women preaching. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, Dangerous. Yeah. So, um, Dangerous stuff. Yes. And they are kind of, yeah. And they are, I mean, their beliefs are very, very orthodox, except things like women preaching. And again, they're kind of anti-Episcopal um, hierarchy and things. Right? So, yeah. So the church is worried. Obviously, some of it's belief and some of it is power. Right? Politics. Um, and then we have this instance in 1208 when this papal legate is murdered by this vassal. Um, and Innocent III is like, all right, that's it. <laughs> uh, and he calls out a crusade against the Cathars. And so if you've heard of crusades, as I said, against Christians, like this is the one. And so, yeah, it's known as the Albigensian Crusade, because, again, the city of Albi in this region of France is one of the big ones. Um, I mean, one of the sort of the hotbed. Uh, Toulouse is the capital of this area, really. Um Raymond. I mean, obviously, the Count is, is part of this. <laughs> um, before we get this far, we should mention that there was the Third Lateran Council in 1179. That was Pope Alexander III, which is in part against the Cathars. Um, and so it says some things like, um, you know, <clears throat> that if they proclaim their error publicly and draw the simple and weak to join them, we declare that they are their defenders and those who receive them are under anathema. Right. Um, this is Canon 27 okay. um, from the Third Lateran Council. So we forbid under pain of anathema that anyone should keep or support them, et cetera, et cetera. All right. So Canon 27 also um, offers two years remission of penance and ecclesiastical protection of their persons and lands, um, the same as those who visit the Lord's sepulcher, meaning who visit Jerusalem, um, for those who take up arms against the Cathars. Wow. Okay. Now... Yeah. Or all heretics, but we're, you know, we're really worried about the Cathars at this point. So that's an indulgence, right? So this indulgence is offered. Famously, that's what crusades do, right? You get an indulgence for fighting the enemies of the Lord. So, but it's not until innocent that we get the actual crusade called. Um, all right. So <coughs> there's not a lot to say here, <laughs> except, um, that one of the reasons it's so famous, of course, is because it is clearly against Christians. And also, there is a lot of indiscriminate killing. So France, obviously, yeah, there are a lot of Cathars, but there are a ton of faithful Catholics. People are just pretty much indiscriminately massacred uh, throughout this crusade. Sure. That's what crusades do anyway. But this is happening, <laughs> I mean, against Christians. And there, um, it has definitely been called a genocide. Some people have argued that that is not the correct technical term. One of the interesting things, I think, is that in some ways the Cathars, of course, hadn't maybe, you know, they haven't been around long enough to sort of form a community the way Judaism is a community. Mm -hmm. um, but definitely in the sense that this was to wipe them all out, you know, it kind of is. It depends on how you define mm -hmm. genocide, right? Like, yes, they were trying to wipe them all out. Um, and so we also have... The most famous moment comes pretty early on in July 1209. Um, there's a massacre um, at Béziers. Um, the Abbot of Citeaux, <laughs> Citeaux is the main Cistercian house. So remember, St. Bernard was sort of in on this. He definitely preaches crusades. Um, Clairvaux, St. Bernard Clairvaux. I don't mean he was in on this, by the way. No, no, no. Uh, but I mean, previously we had, <laughs> he's dead. But <laughs> in the 11, um, 
40s, remember Eberwin had written to him. Yes, yes. And said, you know, there's this thing I noticed at Cologne with these heretics, and people were so mad at these heretics, they threw them into the fire. And that's sort of one of the early mentions of the, the Cathars. Um, so, yeah, so Cistercians are also definitely a part of this, is what I'm trying to say here. Um, and so the abbot, in this case, the abbot of Cito, Cito is really kind of the main Cistercian house. This is Arnald or Arnaud, um, Amalric is in charge of the mass well is in charge of the siege and then the massacre okay. at Bezier in July 1209 the famous story is told by Caesarius of Heisterbach who is also Cistercian and he writes this down in 1224 now probably this is somewhat apocryphal but at the same time as a Cistercian it's possible and 1224 compared to 1209 it's possible that the story isn't completely apocryphal. Mm. And so historians kind of argue a little bit about it. And they're like, well, he probably didn't say it, but also eh, he may not have not said it. And so what did he say? Well, <laughs> uh, they managed to break into the city and um, their people were hiding everywhere, of course. And there were tons of people hiding in the church and stuff like this. And the soldiers supposedly came to the abbot of Citeaux, um, Amarok, and said, how do we know who to kill? How do we know who the heretics are and who the Catholics are? Um, and he said, perhaps, <laughs> kill them all and God will know his own. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. Which is a line that has come back a lot of places yeah. since. Um, but there it is. That's when it happens. And um, they did slaughter thousands of people. Um, there were tens of thousands of people who live in the town. And as far as we know, they didn't literally slaughter all of them, but the stories say mostly that they slaughtered all of them. Um, so they, they definitely killed thousands of people. Um, and clearly most of them were not heretics. Right. <laughs> um, so it, so this is why it is, as I said, sometimes considered, I mean, this was one of the first things out of the gate that happened. Um, and it lasts, this is, you know, it sort of gets started. 1208 is the murder. 1209 is when the crusade really starts. It goes for 20 years till 1229. So it's really horrific. Yeah, so it's horrific, horrific, and this is what happens to the Cathars. And by the end, um, Raymond VI of Toulouse is dead. His kid, the seventh, um, is, you know, not doing good, well. <laughs> um, there was a sort of intermediary moment when Innocent III got maybe a little nervous that things were either not going his way or maybe going a little too far, or how many people was he, you know, what was he doing here? Um, and he calls... So Fourth Lateran Council does a lot of other stuff. And we're going to talk about it next time because transubstantiation is the big one. And arguably that, you know, we're going to get Protestantism. But one of the other things that they do at the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215 is um, Innocent decides he's going to protect uh, Raymond VII's interests because he's like, he hasn't been part of us the way this dad, his dad has. So, you know, we're going to probably, it seems like it's winding down. We'll end it. And, you know, Raymond the seventh can have to lose back. Okay. <laughs> and what that actually ends up doing is then the dad is like, great. And he takes this opportunity to reinvade. Raymond the seventh is now helping him out. He definitely is a part of it by now. So it sort of reignites everything. Oh. Um, so... Anyway, so we did have this momentary Fourth Lateran where there was kind of an attempt to make some political peace, kind of, but not really. Um, and instead, what ends up happening is it, it does not do that. Um, and so, yeah, so all the Raymonds 
Um, on the other side, we have Simon of Montfort, who's the major dude on the other side. He ends up getting killed and his kid takes over. His kid isn't as good at it. Uh, Philip II of France, who also dies. And then we get Louis VIII. So, Louis VIII. All right, Louis VIII brings it all to an end, finally. And one of the big things, so, yeah, he brings it to an end. He makes political alliances. He and his wife sort of, you know, marry people off to their kid. Also Louis, obviously. They're all Louis. Um, and one of the big things that happens from this is that the Cathars are, I mean, it's been a horrific thing. So the Cathars are obviously still around. I mean, they don't actually manage to kill them all off, of course. But what does happen is that they go underground um, and other heresies kind of take over, mm -hmm. you know. But they're still around. They're still there. They're still here, here and there in pieces. But other heresies sort of come to the fore, and we'll talk more about those next time. One of the other things that happens is that um, certain areas of France particularly, but other places as well, um, really start to have a cynical view of Crusades. Um, and I think we talked about this a little bit. We've talked about the play about St. Nicholas that is from Arras, actually, of course, which is northern France. And the extent to which <laughs> it becomes sort of so clear that Crusades are um, not just political, um, but that, that was always obvious, of course. Right. I mean, not necessarily, but generally speaking, they're of course the idea that they're political isn't necessarily the surprise. Surprise is the extent to which they are not necessarily against the enemies of God. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the Crusades of the Middle East also report a lot of stories of massacres of Christians. Right. And so put together with the actual crusade against Christians, particularly since the Cathars in many places were popular with the people, mm -hmm. right? Um, obviously, yeah, people start to take a kind of dim view of what the Crusades are doing. Okay. So that's another thing that happens. Um, and so you do get a sense of that in Baudel's um, St. Nicholas. But the final thing that happens is that the actual beneficiary of all of this really is Louis and the the future Louis, <laughs> which is to say, yeah, the, the Capetian dynasty mm -hmm. is the big um, winner, right? Because they suddenly have a stronghold in France, in a part of France. Now we think of France as a country. It was not a country. None of these were countries, except for England. But France is going to unify as a nation really early in the Middle Ages, all things considered. Mm -hmm. Certainly compared to everybody else in Europe who isn't going to unify until, I mean, in some cases, like, long after World War II. Um, not long after, but somewhat after. Anyway, um, but yeah, so France is going to unify as a nation. And that is made possible <laughs> in large part because of this, right? They take out the power of Toulouse, essentially. Um, they, you know, marry off to their kid, Louis the, the Ninth. Um, you know, it means that that becomes part of, I mean, France is unifying as a country. So if we get this unification, right, the dynasty, yeah, the Capetian dynasty has this um, new <laughs> country, basically, that they have kind of because the Pope let them slash ask them to do it. And the funny thing is that Philip II, Louis VIII's dad, um, wasn't super into this because he was really much more interested in fighting England. Like John, right? Right. The people, right? The kings in England who also thought they owned France. 
Um, so that's really where he was interested. The fact that, <laughs> um, right, he dies, Louis VIII kind of gets to wrap things up a little bit, um, and suddenly they have this, right, they get to basically add this to their territory, and thus we get sort of France. Um, yeah, so in some ways the, the long-lasting effect, really, of the Albigensian Crusade, or the Crusade against the Cathars, is to unify France as the country we know today. The other interesting thing is that um, it's a this weird reminder of the fact that England, of course, will end up being a Protestant country, right? Right. <laughs> they don't they don't follow the Cathars, but they will end up being Protestant. Um, France is nominally still Catholic, and yet they have certainly had their issues with the Church. So um, you know you can't draw direct lines between anything, but there are some interesting things that that happen. Um, that sort of do have long-lasting consequences that are definitely not the consequences that Innocent presumably intended. But yeah. So, that was a lot. Yeah. It remains for me to say thank you for joining me. Thank you to everyone for listening. If you would like to visit us on the web, we have a website at askmedievalist.com. We have a Facebook page, which is, I think, facebook.com slash askmedievalist. We have a Twitter handle, which is at Ask a Medievalist. Um, you're sending a pattern here. And you can email us at questions at askamedievalist.com. Uh, yeah, and so next time we'll be back to talk a little bit more about proto-Protestant heresies, uh, which is really the big push we get going into the uh, Martin Luther and all of his crazy stuff that he unleashed on the world 95 theses all of that yes yes <laughs> and all of it yep yes so until then wittenberg yes exciting proto-german places yep <laughs> okay uh so until then keep it medieval Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons attributional non-commercial license version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. 